I've called this talk um, Understanding Money, Understanding Ourselves and Bringing Money into Our Practice. Um, And uh, I'll say before I start, I'm talking from, um, I talked off the cuff last night, but I'm actually talking from uh, an article that I've written recently. Uh, I'm not just reading the article, I'm going to sort of talk off it, but just to let you know, it is quite a dense article, and if, you, if what I'm saying interests you, it is um, soon going to be um, available on both Free Buddhist Audio and fwbonews.org, which are two of the movement's best presences on the web anyway, as a text file, um, as well as an audio file. Um, so, you know, you can... Uh, you can go there and uh, listen to it again or read, read the article in full. So, um, uh, well, as Mahadabodhi was saying, I started working a year ago, actually, <coughs> as in a new job. I don't think there's ever been a mov- movement-wide job as a fundraiser in the FWBO development team. Um, now, fundraising, I need to say right from the start, it is and it isn't about money. I mean, obviously, you're asking people for money but actually the main thing that fundraising is about is what it is that you're asking for the money for okay so a lot of people think they don't like they don't like fundraising because it's just about asking for money it's not about that actually it's actually what the project or whatever it is that it is about so it's hopefully about in changing and improving people's lives that's actually what's so great about working as a fundraiser because you're trying to make that kind of stuff happen all the time but it does mean that you have to ask people for money so um, so I've had to think about that quite a lot. And, um, and I noticed a few things very quickly. The first is that actually one of the great things about the job is that it puts me in contact with uh, people's generosity, which is just always very moving and inspiring. Um, but it's also, um, you know, it also presses a lot of people's buttons. And um, I started noticing that. I was very interested in the subject anyway because my buttons get pressed with issues uh, to do with money and I didn't find a lot in, uh, in the Dharma um, to help me it's not, it's not as if it's not there and I'm, I'll, come to that. I'll come to that in a moment so um, I noticed that actually we, quite a lot of us get in quite a lot of muddle about money so I started looking into this, I started reading about it and thinking about it and uh, just basically wanted to get it a bit more up on our agenda really. So I've got, actually the, the emphasis of, uh, of, of what I'm going to talk about is very much to do with our individual uh, relationship with money and how we can bring that a bit more into our practice. Um, but I am going to be making a few kind of movement-wide comments in terms of money. But just first off, um, my reason for writing this article and giving, giving this talk tonight. Well, the first reason for doing it is just to encourage us to talk about money more, actually. Uh, I'll give you just one example. Um, on Free Buddhist Audio, for example, there's over 500 Dharma talks that you can uh, download or listen to on Free Buddhist Audio, and only one of them is about money. Um, so... At least I'm making it two now. Um, but it's just not, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a taboo, really. I seem to like unpopular subjects like death and money. Um, but it's, 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 it's not something that we actually talk about very much. Um, maybe it's another elephant under the carpet. Two older members, Kulanendra and Mahaprabha, have written a book called Mindfulness and Money. It's in the bookshop. And uh, there's, a, there's a quote at the beginning of that. Um, I'll share with you. It says, a person's relationship with money, earning and spending it, takes up more time and energy than any other activity. It's the biggest relationship that we have. Think about your relationship with your life partner, for example, if you have one. If you're completely unaware that you have a relationship, it's unlikely to be a good one. The same holds true for our relationship to money, whether we're rich, poor or in between. Um, Now, obviously, uh, five months ago, things started going completely mad in the uh, economic markets and banking, you know, global banking situation. 
um, and we've since slid into recession. So, uh, so in a way, we're talking about money. In a certain way, we're talking about money, maybe more than we ever have done. I mean, it's like number one item on the news most nights, and it has been for months, hasn't it? Um, but on the other hand, um, I still think that there's, there's, there is a sense of taboo and certainly unease in how we talk about money. So there's this kind of odd... There's this odd combination of things going on, this odd kind of paradox, I suppose, going on. And actually, this sort of increasing fetishization uh, of money, an obsession with money, is something that sort of... There's definitely been a shift in uh, the last 20 to 30 years in the way that our... Well, in the way that our economy is organised, actually, and in the way that we are all individually relating to it. David Loy, who's one of my favourite uh, Buddhist writers, he's an academic and a Zen practitioner. Um, he has written quite a bit about money, some very interesting stuff about money. And he says the predominant religion of the modern world, in fact the most successful religion of all time, making more quick converts more quickly than any other belief system, or value system in history is our present economic system. Um, I think I agree with that statement, and so given that it looks like our present economic system is, if not collapsing, certainly going through a major period of trauma and renewal, I think we're in for some very interesting times in the, in the immediate future, actually. So my first reason for wanting to do this is to actually just encourage us to talk about money more full stop. But secondly, it struck me that when we do talk about it, we actually don't do, do that very well, or that there's certainly huge room for improvement. Um, it's, it's, I, I've kind of noticed, because I do this myself, and I've noticed it in other people, that it, you, when you talk about money, you tend to get broadly speaking, sort of two emotional responses. Um, if you've got money or you feel that you've got money, because often this is not, you know, there's a reality and there's kind of how you feel about it. But if you've got money, then you kind of head towards the sort of guilt feeling. Um, if you haven't got money or you feel you haven't got money or you feel you haven't got enough money, then you, then you head off towards the sort of emotional area of, of resentment. Um, so all sorts of uh, I think it just presses our buttons I'm going to go into this area a lot more um, later in much more, in much more detail but the point is, is that we, I also want us to try and improve the way that we talk about money so it's not just let's talk about it more let's improve the way we talk about it um, my third motivation for wanting to get this up on our agenda is to help us to become a bit clearer about what the what the general Buddhist approach to money actually is um, because it's a fantastic one and to increase our confidence in that and this will help us uh, to feel an awful lot better about this area of our lives and I don't know about you but I just like feeling better about every area of my life really so if I can feel better about my money life, um, I'm just going to be a happier, happier person. Um, this is also a particularly difficult time. Another friend of mine, um, architect actually, lost her job last week. I don't know about you, but I do know people who are losing their jobs. And uh, so this is a really difficult time. It's not just something abstract that's going on out there. It's hitting, it's hitting people hard. Um, and I just think it's, it's really crucial that uh, we have something to say about that as, as Buddhist practitioners, um, as members of the Sangha, and that if, if people are coming through the door of our, our public centres and that's a major concern in their life, and especially if it's a cause of a lot of suffering in their life, I think it's really important that we have something to say to them. So, um, And the Buddha... The Buddha Times have changed since then, but the Buddha had some really interesting and helpful things to say about money. So I'm going to go into that a bit more in a moment as well. And my fourth reason for wanting to raise this is that it's not just the world economy that's changing, the FWBO isn't separate from that. 
the economy of the movement is changing as well and we need to we need to start thinking differently if we want to survive and prosper as a movement um, so I'm giving this talk to a Sangha night at the Manchester Buddhist Centre. I'm assuming that everybody in the room has, you know, a, a sort of reasonable kind of level of commitment to the Dharma and, uh, and maybe, you know, to the FWBO as the Sangha that they're practising in as well. So um, hopefully that has some meaning for you and that's something that you'll be uh, concerned about and, um, and wanting to address as well. Um, uh, say a lot more about that but uh, I'll just maybe keep it to a few comments which is that um, a lot of our businesses are struggling um, our biggest business which is Windhorse Evolution is uh, fighting for survival at the moment um, it, I don't know if it's going to survive, it might survive, it might go down, it might go down this year, it might go down next year and uh, it's just, I think we've just got very used to um, Windhorse Evolution being around for the last 20 years. It's just been a fantastically successful business in lots of ways. It's handed out huge dollops of money. You know, the, it makes money to give it away and it's donated hundreds and thousands of pounds and there's an awful lot of things um, that exist in the movement at the moment because of all the people who've worked in uh, Windhorse Trading, uh, Windhorse Evolution and all its customers, of course, and uh, that might not be there anymore. And um, I don't know how much that will affect you um, in Manchester because you don't actually have a shopper here anymore anyway, do you? Um, but there's certainly other centres that that's... That that's um, well, you know, we're just going to have to kind of deal with it. That's part of what we're, we're going to have to kind of deal with maybe over the, over the next year or two. But even if it doesn't affect you here locally in Manchester, you are part of uh, an international Buddhist movement and there are a lot of movement-wide projects that are also going to be affected by this. So uh, this is kind of part of the, my kind of awareness-raising mission here, I suppose, is to just be aware that, you know, that change is happening, that more changes might be coming. Um, I mean, we never were in the business of standing still anyway, um, but that more and more of us will, will are actually working outside of the movement, so more and more of us are in regular jobs on you know on regular salaries and I think that more and more we're going to need uh, as individuals uh, practicing in the context of the FWBO to sort of step up financially uh, individually um, to help our our institutions our teaching institutions really it's about spreading helping spread the dharma to survive so that's one of my concerns but uh, my main emphasis in this talk is to is to look at how our individual relationship with money you know what does it what does it mean for you and for me so that's what I'm going to turn to now so let's just touch base for starters with a few reminders about uh, what Buddhist teachings are what relevant Buddhist teachings are about money um, there's actually lots of Buddhist um, teachings that can guide us in how we practice with money. The teachings on ethics, um, the teachings about living simply and um, moderation, all the teachings around the area of uh, contentment, which definitely isn't just to do with um, a, a, you know once what you do with your sexuality. It's contentment in every possible area of your life. Um, including, you know, aesthetics and possessions, etc., etc. There are teachings about greed. Uh, there's lots of teachings about generosity. That's the the first the first paramitar. I'm not going to go over that material here uh, because I expect that most of you have um, are already familiar with those kind of teachings. And there's a lot of other things that I that I want to say. But the Buddha didn't avoid the subject of money um, directly. And he had two approaches to it, basically. He had one approach that addressed his monastic followers, who were the minority. Uh, and he had one approach that addressed everybody else, i.e. those who were working, earning and spending. Um, and there are actually several suttas uh, specifically about, about money. 
Um, I'm not going to go into those either, but you can you can check them out. Um, but you can Google and find out what they are. So um, he basically drove a clear line down the middle way between need and greed. And I guess to put it in a nutshell, you could say that his teaching really was emphasising inner wealth. That's basically what he was emphasising with our, our mind or our heart mind, as I prefer to call it, our heart mind being our greatest asset. He never condemned outer wealth. In fact, he praised it. Now, I find a lot of people are usually quite surprised about that. They tend to think that, I think because they, they just associate uh, practising the Dharma, being a Buddhist with being a monk or a nun, that, you know, it's something that you don't have anything to do with. But, but his, you know, his followers are never restricted to, to um, uh, monastic um, followers. And uh, he never condemned outer wealth. In fact, he praised it. Um, and the issues, the main issues really were about how you got your money. So that's where the ethics come in, you know, how you earn your money. That's what right livelihood, teachings on right livelihood were all about. And what you did with it. So those were the two main issues. They're about how you get your money and what you do with your, in, with your money. So basically he's teaching stress that our relationship with money be guided by uh, wisdom and understanding of its true value and of its limitations. Uh, it's very important not to be burdened by money. That's got nothing to do with how much or how little you've got. It's just very important not to be burdened by money and that we should be masters of our wealth. So it's important to be financially literate, take responsibility for yourself in that area. And this is my favourite bit, to use it to bring happiness and benefit to others. So that's the, that's the main reason why he praised it. So, so far so good. I think I like his message, his direct message about money. But times have changed a lot since the Buddha's day. That's two and a half thousand years ago. And we're living in a very different world. The Buddha taught in a feudal world of peasants and clans and kings. It was a much simpler world. Uh, very few people could read, actually, in the Buddha's time. Um, again, in Kulananda's book, uh, The Mindfulness of Money, he suggests three crucial differences in uh, interpreting Buddhist teachings on money. Um, I'll just say what those are, and then actually I'm going to talk quite a lot about a fourth one that I think he's, he's kind of left out a bit. So he, he points out that uh, actually Western culture, the culture that we're in, is highly developed, powerful and confident. And it has, we have a very developed language for discussing money. In fact, it's so developed I can't understand what on earth half the news stories are, are about at the moment. It goes way over the top of my head. So alongside that, sort of traditional Buddhist discourses can, can just seem incredibly naive um, and you know, childlike, really, and sort of simplistic. So it means that we have to listen, we have to listen very carefully and use our imagination if we're to hear the Buddhist teachings about money and be able to kind of transfer them to our sort of current situation. We've got to use our, our intelligence and our imagination to uh, do that translation, I suppose, is what it is. The second crucial difference is the extraordinary breadth of choice we face, of family structure and lifestyles, of ways to earn money and ways to spend money which can sometimes feel very liberating and it can sometimes feel um, like unparalleled confusion. The third difference is that the way we earn and spend money in the West has the potential to do more harm, or conversely, more good, than ever before. So, I mean, in short, money matters far more now than it did in the Buddha's time. And that's why we really need to get up to speed with having some clear teachings about it and understanding better how we practice with it. So I'd have a, I'd add a fourth area, which I'm actually going to talk quite a lot about, really, which is to do with our psychology in relation to money, because I think that's something that, as the Dharma has come to the West, 
uh, it just has to take um, our psychology into account a lot more than perhaps some traditional Buddhist teachings do. Um, and uh, even if we take the three points that Kulanander's um, mentioned into account and develop a more sort of sophisticated discourse about money, if you like, it's still not enough for that discourse to just be about greed and consumerism and materialism um, or, or about how we should be with money. Um, I mean, I just don't think we should be thinking like that at all. I don't think it's about how we should be uh, with money at all. Um, if we take that kind of attitude, if we start kind of thinking that we should be in a certain way about money, or especially if that's how we start teaching that we should be about money, I think all, we, we're just going to go, um, we're just going to hit a brick wall basically. It encourages a dogmatist attitude, um, as well as forgetting the pleasures and benefits of wealth. I think it's just really important we make sure that's. You know that's at the that's up the top there. That's that's what's so beautiful about it. You can do fantastic things with it. Um, but it also underestimates the power of our unconscious. You know all that murky stuff, all that kind of weird stuff that we do in relation to money. So that's really what I think we need to to understand better. We need to help to get some insight, better insight into the psychological forces that affect our attitudes and our behaviour towards money. So to do that, let's have a look at what money actually is and what it symbolises. There's a fantastic uh, veteran fundraiser called Lynn Twist in America. She's in her 60s now. She's been working as a fundraiser for about 40 years and writes some interesting stuff about it. Money... She says, money is the most universally motivating, mischievous, miraculous, maligned and misunderstood part of contemporary life. So economists, to start with the sort of more obvious aspect of money, I suppose, economists usually define money uh, strictly by its economic function. So it must serve as a means of exchange and be freely accepted for goods and services. So basically the point of money is to offer a measuring device. It's a bit like a ruler so that goods and services can be evaluated in relation to one another. And and also that money must be in a form that can be stored. So money's got its history, it's got an anthropology, Um, There's like loads and loads of different kind of um, books about money that take all these different kind of angles on it. There's television programmes and television series on about it now, aren't there, because of what's going down since September the the 15th. Um, So there's more and more of that happening. Um, I don't think that it it does just have a strictly economic function. And there's another writer about it called William Bloom. I really like his approach to money and his interpretation of money. He says, In the tribal communities where money first emerged, the gifting and exchanging that created money was mainly to do with building relationships, signifying social solidarity, making gestures to nature and the gods and basically signifying a recognition of something important. So the simple truth is, uh, William Bloom says, is that money emerged in order to facilitate human relationships, that that's the point of it, and not to facilitate trade and business. So I know the, the 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 TV series that's on at the moment is going down that you know it's all about facilitating trade and business. I think this is much more interesting to me. It just seems to be much more. It just speaks much more likely to be the heart of the matter of what it's about. So here's a good question to ask. We can ask more meaningfully of any money situation that we find ourselves in is how well is this facilitating relationship. And I know that's something I'm having a very strong experience of in this job, actually. 
that an awful lot of my job working as a fundraiser in the FWBO is about Sangha building. It just kind of, I mean, in some ways I'm kind of consciously doing that, but it just, it's what, it's what you were saying in your introductory remarks, mm. isn't it? That's just what happens. So I, I think that William Bloom is really much more on to the truth of something there about what money's about. You know, it's got much more to do about our relationships with each other. So another point that's made about money, what is money, is that it's a distinctly human invention. You know, we've invented it. Um, It's not natural. I could crack a joke about it It doesn't grow on trees, but oh, I did it. Oh, God, I tried not to go there. Um, But it's not, it's a human invention. So that means, um, supposedly, that means that it has only the power that we assign to it so if we've, in, if we've invented it, if we've created it, surely that means we're controlling the power it's got. Surely it means that we can control it. Uh, well, you know, look at what's going on at the moment. Um, I'm not so sure that that's the case. Um, William Bloom, I agree with William, William Bloom again. He says, we need to realise that the economic world as we know it is very recent. It exploded into existence only over the last 150 years. And love it or hate it, no one fully understands the new financial world. It's still emerging. And he goes on to say that there's always wisdom in acknowledging our ignorance, for then it allows an attitude of investigative thinking. Um, so I, I certainly think that that's what's going on at the moment. In fact, the cover up the front article of uh, New Statesman this week um, is I'd recommend buying it and reading it actually an article by Martin Jakes who's basically saying that the political and financial elites actually have no idea what's going on at the moment and they have no idea how they're going to um, nobody is in control of this and that what's going on is only just starting you know this is this is just the beginning and from all the reading and thinking that I've been doing about this recently, um, I'm inclined to agree with that conclusion. Um, so hopefully, let's hope that uh, uh, a new economics will emerge that will be much more interested in relations, relationships and looking at patterns of things rather than how figures add up. Um, and let's hope that the crisis that's going on in the world at the moment will uh, become a great opportunity um, that will give a boost to progressive finance and green economics and community development. And I just think uh, it's really important that we do our best to try and play a part in supporting that as individuals and uh, collectively too. And Triodos, which is a bank that the FWBO, it's an ethical bank, uh, that the FWBO have uh, quite a history of involvement with, and a lot of our centres have mortgages with. Um, they did a, uh, they commissioned an opinion poll recently, and it very strongly suggests that people's attitude to their money is changing, and that in particular people want to know much more about how their bank invests their money, you know, and what they're and what they're doing with it, basically. So. So let's hope that the legacy of, of what's going on at the moment will be a shift to more transparent and sustainable finances. And let's make sure that our own institutions are keeping up with that and are behaving in that way too. So I like William Bloom as a writer about money. And he says some other th- interesting things. Uh, he writes about how there seems to be in terms of us trying to understand what all our murky stuff is about money, that there's a primal fear underlying our economic feelings. And uh, he explains that by basically saying that because we have uh, become separated from having a direct relationship with nature, because we supposedly think that we've got natural uh, forces under control that we've transferred our sort of natural fear, our primal fear of nature and her elemental powers like storms, famine, pestilence, earth movements, that we've, with, with nature apparently conquered, uh, that we've transferred our fears about that onto money and the economy. 
and that our vulnerable relationship is now with this other creature, you know, the economy. And that even if we do everything right, we are still subject to the uncontrollable forces of the economy. And that the economy has moods like nature. Well, it's certainly felt like that lately, hasn't it? Uh, and so we've got, we've got no choice, the vast majority of us, but to use money. And so when we're faced with an environment that we don't understand and that we don't control, it's, under, it's completely understandable and normal to feel anxiety about it, about what's going on. Um, and that that is what, ha- what a lot of people are feeling at the moment. Um, but there's much more to our emotional and psychological response to money than anxiety. There's even more to it than that. Money is a powerful symbol of many things in our society. It provides us with basic necessities, food, shelter, clothing. So it's a symbol of security and having our needs met, our basic needs met. Other people give money in exchange for our time, our skills or our services. So money is also a symbol of self-worth and self-esteem. Money can buy us leisure time and experiences. So it's a symbol of freedom and choice. Money can be swapped for status symbols and badges of identity. So it's a symbol of personal identity and of belonging to something. And money can be heavily linked in with our relationship with our parents, our partners or ex-partners, becoming a symbol of love, support, dependence, neediness and power. Wow. No wonder we get so screwed up about money. It can mean so much to us, all those different things to us. So um, to state the obvious, money is a useful resource, but it cannot make us feel safe, happy or good about ourselves. So whenever you feel a button being pushed about money stuff, it can point to how money is symbolising other issues in our lives. And I think that's a great reason for getting more interested in it. Um, You know, we're interested in exploring ourselves and what's going on. So the first thing to... How do you figure out what money symbolises to you? How can you release that weight, actually? Um, How do you do that? Well, the first step is to start to notice, really, and to be interested and to be open and to explore what's going on. You know, notice when your buttons are getting pushed. Uh, just start noticing it and, and get interested, actually. Like any, like any practice, meditation practice, just the secret of success is to get interested in what's going on and to be open to, you know, un- I'm, f- I'm feeling uncomfortable a bit about things, probably. So where lots of uh, exercises of investigation into our money lives begin is with counting actually this is one kind of another approach that you can take it helps us to identify our personal style of working with money so you can start by um, evaluating how much how much you've your net worth really of your belongings that gives you a realistic starting point Then you can actually start analysing the flow of your income and expenditure over a week or a month or a year or several years. I probably have my strongest experience of doing this when I do my tax return every year. You know, I can really see what I'm what I'm where my money's going. And uh, it's just, you know, it's just just tells me a lot about my life, really, what it is that I value and what I'm what I'm what I'm spending money on, what I'm not spending money on. So you start to see. When you analyse ourselves in this detail, we start to get a picture of what's going on and we can see what patterns of our behaviour is emerging. Did we create debts uh, or, have we, or have we managed to save money? Uh, what degree of stinginess is revealed? What degree of generosity is revealed? 
How much control, control did we exercise? Most importantly, were we, are we able to fund the things that matter most to us? If you're not getting on retreat because you're telling yourself that you can't afford it, I think you really probably, really, that's the kind of example of something you really need to look at. You know, where, what are you really spending your money on? What do you really value? You know, what is it you're saying that you really want to do? How does that actually fit with what you're actually really spending your, spending your money on, for example? So perhaps the most powerful tool that helps us with this sort of exercise is just simple truthfulness. You know, it's just being really honest. It's actually quite difficult to be really honest with ourselves about money, never mind with other people. You know, it's something, if you're in a study group or some kind of, uh, some kind of friendship group in the Sangra or whatever, it's something you can think about doing as a group. So another exercise to help us look at our, our, uh, our stuff with money is to tell our financial life story. I think we've got a fantastic um, sort of tradition of doing this in the FWBO, actually, telling our life stories. And we quite often have a different sort of angle on it. Um, so something you could do is, to, is, is just with one other friend or maybe in a group, uh, is to tell your financial life story. Um, I did an interview with Banty last year, um, which is also available as a text file with uh, Free Buddhist Audio and FWBO dot, uh, News now, if you want to read that. Um, it's been made more publicly available just in the last couple of weeks. Um, I did an interview with Banty about his financial life story to help me um, run a fundraising appeal that I did for him in the order last year to, uh, it was to encourage the order to take on his support um, and it was it was just absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, 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 I learned a lot. I got a lot of feedback about doing that interview, actually, and I think we all found out a lot more about Banty's life uh, that we didn't know just from asking him very specific questions about his financial financial life story. So find the money thread in your own in your own life story because it's there, and it will have a meaning. It will have a meaning for you. You know, and it may have changed. So um, another uh, tool, one of the most helpful tools that I've come across in uh, working, helping us to work out our stuff with money, is um, a tool that a man called Brent Kessel has uh, shared with me in a book that he's recently published last year. He's, um, he's, uh, he's a financial advisor and um, who I wouldn't say he defines himself as a Buddhist but he's definitely very informed and influenced and moved by uh, Buddhism by the Dharma and he's written a book called um, It's Not About the Money and uh, he talks about, uh, he uses this concept of us having, of us all having a core story about money it says most of us have a four-year-old running our financial lives, um, which I could relate to. Um, and uh, he says most, he uses this concept of a core story. And so a core story is our deepest held feelings and beliefs that we have about money. It's what we're unconsciously telling ourselves we're like. Uh, what we can have, what we can't have, what we must do, what we mustn't do. Um, it actually helps to show up our, what our conditioning has been and what all the assumptions are that we've got about money. Um, and that it's only when we start to really examine our core story um, that we'll even begin to be able to start figuring out how we can change our financial lives, the way that we relate to money. So um, to change our financial behaviour, of course, needs a lot more than, than even uh, awareness and insight. We actually need to be willing to change and to intend to change. And I think I just want to encourage you to trust that uh, because we all have a basic goodness in us, uh, our Buddha nature, if you, if you like, to just trust that part of your motivation will undoubtedly be ethical and altruistic. And I just want to encourage you to really sort of trust that um, and to 
to really uh, take that to heart, basically, in your motivation for wanting to change. And to realise there's a carrot here for you on a very personal level as a motivation to change because we will all feel better when we're financially wise and assertive and generous rather than when we're financially stupid and when we feel victimised and selfish. You know, We will just feel better. It can just make a huge difference to how you go about your, very, your daily life. So one of the best tools I've come across so far is, um, is a, 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 some financial archetypes that Brent Kessel has come up with based on uh, many, 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 many clients working with many, many people. And he reckons that there's sort of eight core stories. Um, and so he's come up with these oh, eight financial archetypes which I know I'm giving you an awful lot of information and it's very hard to take that in. So I've put it up on the uh, flipboard here. Um, So each archetype has a pitfall and a gift. And if you like, I think he's got a kind of Vajrayana way of working um, with this money stuff. Maybe maybe that's why I like what he's doing here. Um, Because he's saying the trick to change... Uh, in our relationship with money to improve our relationship with money is to keep working to identify and retain the healthiest part of our core stories message while at the same time letting go of the the more extreme and unhealthy behaviours that it's it's engendered in us so I'm just going to run through for the sake of uh, the people who are listening to this um, and who aren't able to see see it up on the paper behind me here. I'm just going to run through the archetypes. Most of us are actually more than one archetype. I think I'm about three of them, and I'll, I'll share with you what that is in a moment and how I'm kind of using this to sort of help move me a bit with my stuff with money. So the first archetype is the guardian and the pitfalls of, uh, of the guardian. There's a chapter on each of these archetypes in his book just to encourage you to get the book. Uh, the pitfalls of the guardian archetype is that you're constantly worrying and anxious about money. Uh, but the gift that the guardian archetype presents to you is that it, it makes you alert and so you can, you're prudent about how you deal with money. So you basically what you do is you, you, you work on it. He suggests specific things, but I can't go into hu- too much detail about this ways in which to try and just slacken off on the anxiety side and to, you know, increase the alertness and prudence side, if that's the kind of archetype that you are. And then there's the pleasure seeker, the archetype of the pleasure seeker, and uh, their pitfall is uh, hedonism and impulsiveness. Um, but the gifts are that they really know how to enjoy themselves and to have, take, take pleasure in, in what money can provide. Then there's the idealist. I bet there's a lot of idealists in the FWBO. So they have a distrust and aversion towards money. Uh, But the gifts that that archetype has, if they strengthen that sort of aspect of it, is that they hold hold a kind of vision, um, a vision of money that emphasises its compassionate use. So then there's the saver archetype. So the pitfall of the saver is that they're, they're hoard and penny pinch. But the gift of that, that archetype is, uh, is a sense of abundance and self-sufficiency. So then there's the star, who can be um, full of self-importance as uh, the pitfall. Uh, but the gift that that has is, uh, is about leadership with money and style place to be saying that in then there's the innocent archetype uh, who basically just uh, tries to avoid money and goes into a kind of helplessness thing about money Uh, but the strengths of that archetype are to to do with um, hope Um, you know they're not they're not cynical they haven't become cynical so they have hope and they can be adaptable to situations Uh, and then there's a caretaker 
Um, I can think of a friend who's a good... I'm not a caretaker, but I can think of a good friend who's a caretaker who, yep, she can, she can tend to be self-abandoning, uh, puts everybody else first, doesn't kind of really, you know, look after herself. Um, but the strengths, the gifts of that archetype is uh, empathy and uh, generosity, and that's definitely her too. And then there's the empire builder. I can think of an empire builder too, but I'm not going to name names. Uh, and the pitfall of the empire builder is to do with uh, greed and domination. Um, but the, the gift that, that archetype carries is, um, is somebody who can be decisive and innovative. So let's hope there's a few of them around at the moment because we're going to need them. Uh, so obviously there's a danger in using models like this in that you can kind of fix yourself or other people and just get into you know labeling things but I personally have found it incredibly helpful Uh, what I really like about um, Kessel's model and his writing is how well he marries um, uh, dharma teachings around money with psychology in, in 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 a notoriously tricky area And what I really like is that he affirms how different we all are in what's shaped us and that therefore we all need to do different things with money. So that was my point at the beginning, is that I don't think it's at all helpful to think that there's only one way to be about money, you know, and that we, you know, that we we figure out what that is and then we try and be like that and then we try and tell everybody else to be like that. Um... Because we're all going to be, you know, we have the teachings that kind of hold the context um, about money. But then actually, uh, I found this this kind of model very helpful. And so he is affirming how different we are in what's shaped us and that we each need to do different things in order to grow and become money mature. Um, So, you know, one person, for example, might spend all their money on God knows what and be constantly in crisis and debt. So they need to learn about prudence and have a sense of that they have a future uh, and become more self-sufficient. Whilst another person who's, you know, unnecessarily anxious and cautious would actually grow from spending more of their money uh, on themselves and other people, and uh, and learn to enjoy that, basically, and to understand its benefits as well as its pleasures. This is like a financial equivalent of a meditation review. That's what I think this is, you know. What do you need to do? You know, how are you working with money, and what do you need to do to improve your relationship and the way that you practice with it? So there's no one way to be about money. Um... I'm just going to skip a bit because I'm aware of the time. Um, uh, okay, I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to have to cut a bit of this because I've got too much material. Um, there's one particularly difficult area that I I just want to say a few words about, um, and that is about uh, the challenge of relative deprivation. I think you could say one of the defining characteristics of the kind of society that we live in is uh, relative deprivation. Uh, that house by house, road by road, people are living with uh, competing images of of wealth and poverty. And this is a situation that's going to be compounded by uh, the recession, basically. Um, who's got a home, who hasn't? Who's got a job, who hasn't? Um, and it can it can often feel kind of difficult to take that seriously sometimes when it's things like, you know, teenagers having a strop about not getting the kind of trainers that they want. But it can often be much more serious than that, uh, like when you're looking at starving children in developing nations on the TV news. Uh, that's certainly not uh, superficial. And I, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to just stay with that and hold my awareness open to those kind of situations in the world. So, you know, one person's need is another person's luxury. The whole issue, the whole area area of relative deprivation is just really difficult um, about money and very painful. And the order in the movement are not immune to this um, you know, we are in hugely uh, different circumstances. 
Um, and it's it's hard to know what else to say about that, really, except that I hope that uh, us just learning to talk about money more and issues like this will make it easier and will encourage us to become more aware of each other's situations and needs and to basically remember that the practice for all of us is to uh, try to uh, develop and maintain skillful mental states in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Um, So a better question than how much do I have or need or want is uh, a better question than that is really what is wealth? Um, And true wealth, of course, is nothing to do with money, um, but it's the full potential of our inherent worth. So this is expressed through qualities such as dignity, confidence and awareness and projecting an enriching presence in whatever sort of situation we find ourselves in, possessing basic sanity and, uh, and radiance. Um, so the whole point of practice is to shift from our usual wanting mind to a much bigger, a much bigger heart and a non-grasping mind. So let's try and make the way that we, that we work with money fit with what we're trying to do in the rest of our practice. And let's address what it is that we truly value. We all need money. We all need to have money. But let's try and work with money as creatively and skillfully as we can. And in terms of the wider movement, let's remember that money isn't the only resource that we've got. And actually, the most precious resource that we've got is is people. You know, it's ourselves. Um, We've got all sorts of assets and resources in the order and in the movement. So let's let's never forget that and uh, and make sure that they're all properly valued and appreciated and supported. It's a really big issue. It's a really big subject, money. Um, I've said quite a lot about it. I could probably have said even more about it. I just hope that I've encouraged you in this talk to just look, look more and look longer at this crucial area of our lives and our, and our practice uh, because there's so much to be gained um, for us and for the spreading of the Dharma by increasing our clarity and strengthening our confidence about money matters, especially in these difficult times. And there are even more difficult times ahead, I fear. So I have, I'm going to end with um, a quote that I have on my laptop from uh, Lynn Twist, one of my um, sort of mentors, if you like, to remind me of what it is that I'm trying to do in this job that I find myself doing at the moment. And she says, a great fundraiser is a broker for the sacred energy of money, helping people use the money that flows through their lives in the most useful way that's consistent with their aspirations and hopes for humanity. Each of us, she says, and this is the note I'd like to end on, each of us has the opportunity in our own lives to steward the flow of money, whatever level comes our way. So uh, I really hope that this talk has helped you to do that and may you fully enjoy all the benefits and pleasure that that brings. Thank you.